How are we doing? Good. My name is Andy Hermanson. I am the discipleship uh, coordinator here at Lutheran Church of Hope, Des Moines. And I just want to tell you all, I am thankful for you. Did you guys have a good Thanksgiving? Yeah, it is wonderful to be here with you this morning. And Thanksgiving is such a fun time. Uh, and I think it is great to slow down for even for a minute as, you know, maybe you're putting turkey in your mouth or mashed potatoes or whatever it is. Uh, just to stop and to be thankful. And can we just do that to start out this morning? Let's just take a moment uh, for all of the volunteers uh, that make a Sunday morning like this happen. I mean, people are here at 6.30 in the morning to start setting this up, and they don't go home till 1.30 in the afternoon. Uh, for all those volunteers, for the people that, that come and donate so that we can do this, uh, for all the things that God has done for you in the past 12 months, Maybe uh, he's come into your life in a new way. Maybe there's been some really cool stories of miraculous things that God has been doing. Whatever it is that you're thankful for this morning, will you just join me in a round of applause for Jesus Christ and for all that he's given us? Because we have plenty to be thankful for, amen? amen. I hope you know that this morning. I hope that that is uh, the case for you. Uh, I, as I said, I think it's a great time of year, and, and I wish every, every Thanksgiving I think, you know, I want to try and keep that, that mindset, because when we get to this time of year, we just think about what are we thankful for. I mean, on Facebook, for the last 25 days, people have been posting each day one thing I'm thankful for, and, and my prayer out of this season is always that we can make it a lifestyle of Thanksgiving, and I know that that's hard, but as I've been reflecting this Thanksgiving season, I, I realize that there are a lot of things I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for God and all that he's done in my life, uh, just as you all uh, just, just celebrated with me. Um, I'm thankful that I have a job, that I have a warm house I get to sleep in. I mean, I know not everybody has those things. Um, I'm thankful for the relationships, for the people that God has put in my life. And at the top of that list, I put my wife, Heather, and most days, I put my children on that list, too. <laughs> Notice I say most days. They're sitting over here, too, so I'm trying not to look at them, but... Uh, most days, but there are days as a parent, and if you have kids when they were little, if you've ever even seen my family in action on a Sunday morning or any other time, you know there are days that you're very thankful for everybody, and you know that there can be days when it's not like the case, where that is not the case. And a couple weeks ago, maybe almost a month ago, we had a day like that. My son, Callan, does not like to sit still, does not like to sit still. Uh, yet one day as we're trying to get in the van, trying to get going somewhere, uh, I have three kids now and in the Hermitson house we're trying to adjust this, we're trying to move more from a man to man, we used to have a man to man defense, now we're more on a zone coverage, you know, trying to make it all work. And it's hard, let me tell you, like we're trying to get him on the van and I get Callan in the van and I'm in the midst of putting the straps on his car seat and all of a sudden I hear another one start crying inside and it's the littlest Violet, she's not even a month old at this point so I think okay. I got to go, I got to go be with her and I got to get her out here, right? So I look at my son, Callan, who's two years old. And I look at him, I give him two words, stay here. All right, I go in, record time, I get Violet in her car seat, I get everything taken care of and we get out to the van and where do you think Callan was? Gone, gone. So I think, all right, that's not great, you know? I don't want to be that guy that loses his kid. So so I go and I check the front yard. He's not there. There's a woman that happens to be driving by in a minivan and she's looking across the street from my house and she's got this kind of look on her face like, huh, that's weird. And I think, okay, my son has to be over there. So I go over there. Not there. I go in the backyard. 
nowhere to be found. There's a school behind our house. They think, well, maybe he went to the playground. I'm kind of looking over there. I can't seem to find him anywhere. And inside of me now, you can imagine my pulse is starting to race a little bit, right? And it's not just because I'm out of shape, you know. I'm, I'm trying to keep up. I'm just trying to keep calm. And I feel this urge rising up just to think, just, just to freak out. And I start thinking about my neighbors and everything else, and I'm like, you know, I've seen too many survival movies. It's, you can't freak out. You can't lose concentration, right? So I'm trying to keep it calm. And so I keep walking around the neighborhood. I check the neighbor's house. I go the other direction. I check more neighbors' houses. And I'm looking around, and minutes have passed now, right? I'm playing it cool. On the inside, I'm freaking out. And I'm looking around, and finally, when there's no other alternative than to call the cops... I get in my truck, and I'm like, i got to drive around this neighborhood and just make sure that he's... I mean, where did this kid go? And so I get in my truck, and I drive around the corner. I'm about three blocks away from my house. And instantly I saw him, and I knew exactly what had happened. Now, you see a picture up here is a picture of a garbage truck. It was garbage day in our neighborhood. And the very moment as I walked inside the house, the garbage truck came. All right, now think about this. Garbage trucks, well, especially if you're a two-year-old, they're really cool, right? I mean, first they come and they make all this noise. They make truck noises. I mean, what two-year-old isn't going to love that, right? They've got flashing lights on top, you know, driving around. They make a lot, of, a lot of noise. You don't see them every day. But above all, these garbage trucks, they have these robotic arms that look like something out of a science fiction movie, right? And they go and they scoop it up and they dump it in the top. I mean, what two-year-old in their right mind isn't going to want to follow that thing down the street, right? That's exactly what Callan did. He was sitting there literally walking along the sidewalk, just staring at the garbage truck with his mouth wide open. Needless to say, when I picked him up, I, it was a scoop more. Threw him in the front seat of my truck, and I had some very choice words for him that day. Now, the thing about that story, though, is I was trying to figure out how on earth do you discipline I mean, how do you, how do you give a kid consequences that that will compute at two years old the danger he was in? And I had all these emotions as a parent. But the thing that stuck in my mind, actually, as I think about that story now more than anything else, was how if you had looked at me during that process, during that search, that journey that I was on to find my son, I don't think you would have totally realized how how worked up I was on the inside. And part of it was I was worried and I didn't want to draw attention and frankly I didn't want to admit that I was the parent that lost my child for five minutes in the neighborhood. But if you had seen me walking around, you would have had no clue. I was calling his name like he was right around the corner. I mean, I was walking. I wasn't, I wasn't running that fast. Exactly, a slow walk. And the thing is about that, if you had seen me that day, you would have seen something entirely different than what was going on inside. And it's important for us as we begin this morning to realize that things don't always seem as they appear. I mean, I looked like this, this calm parent walking around, when in truth, on the inside, I was freaking out. Now, the last few weeks, in fact, 11, the past 11 weeks, We've been on a journey as a church to get to know God's story. We've learned lots of lessons along the way. And as we've been marching through the Old Testament, we're beginning to get a sense of the broader arc, the, the bigger picture of what God is up to. Now, the relationship that God had with his people, it's been broken. We have found that out in the first week or two in Genesis, Adam and Eve in the garden. And God has been on this mission 
ever since. So eventually God comes to this guy named Abraham and he says, Hey, Abe, I want to bless you. I want to use you to redeem the entire world. I know you're having trouble having kids right now, but you see those stars up there. I'm going to give you so many descendants. They're going to be more than the stars, more numerous than all of the stars that you can see. He says, Abe, I want to make you into a mighty nation that's going to bless the rest of the world. And it comes to pass. We see that in the Exodus. They, they grow, they multiply, they head out. But the thing is, is this journey, this, this nation of Israel has been emerging in God's story. They've had one problem over and over and over again. They've been having a really hard time finding a leader that will fit. Now, some of the leaders are really great, but they only last for a certain amount of time. And finally, in their frustration, and we begin to see in the, in the book of 1 Samuel that the, this nation continues to struggle being obedient to God, and they decide they want to be like other nations, and they demand that God give them a king. And God says, whoa, whoa, you don't know what you're asking for. If you get a king, things aren't going to be as, as good. God says, I'm going to be your king. And they say, no, we want to be like everybody else. We need a king. And so they, they ask for a king to rule over them, and God gives them Saul. Now, when you look at Saul, he is the paradigm. He is the picture of what a good king should look like. I mean, he's tall. He's handsome. I mean, this is, this is the description they give, right? He's really skilled in battle, which Israel seems to be fighting battles all the time to, to stake out their turf and defend it from other nations. Yet there's something about Saul that just isn't quite right. And eventually, when things go sideways, as the story continues, he breaks one of the Lord's commands, and Samuel, the last of the judges, comes to him. The guy that we talked about last week comes to Saul at, right after this battle has taken place, and he says, you have done a foolish thing. Saul, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom forever. Saul is an obvious choice for a king, but something has gone wrong. And so God changes his mind. He starts working a new plan for a leader for Israel. And so Samuel, Samuel gives him the hard news. He says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Things are changing in Israel. Leaders are turning over. Saul is the guy, and it's not like he's going to be done today. Samuel doesn't say that, but he says, God has set somebody else aside. Things are changing in Israel, and it's about to get interesting. So as we dive into chapter 11, today we begin to get a sense that God is changing things up, and he sends Samuel to find this new king, this new person, and just as if you'd seen me that morning chasing my son around our neighborhood, we begin to learn a valuable lesson that things do not always seem as they appear because Samuel almost misses the boat. So let's dive in the story. If you have your story Bibles, open to page 145. It's the beginning of chapter 11. Uh, if you are using the Abundant Life Bible, it's 1 Samuel 16. And I want you to pay attention as, I, as we kind of move into the story. I mean, what is it that God wants to say to you about the way that you perceive the world around you this morning? The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? He was pretty upset about this. Since I have rejected him king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. Jesse of Bethlehem. I feel like we've heard about that before. 
I mean, nothing exciting ever happens in Bethlehem, right? Just a couple weeks ago, as we were talking about Ruth, we looked at this family tree. And as, as the prophets were foretelling, the day of the king that will rule over Israel was going to come out of uh, Boaz and Ruth's relationship. So we're beginning to see God is threading this story. The story is beginning to progress. And eventually, a Jesse, we begin to meet David, which is who we're going to talk about this morning. So Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? How would you like to be the kind of person when people see you at first, they say, hey, are you coming in peace? Samuel replied, yes, I have come to the sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. And he thought, surely... The Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. You can kind of sense where this is beginning to go. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things the people look at, but the Lord looks at the heart. There's a valuable lesson in there. But it continues, Then Jesse called to Abinadab, Everybody say, Abinadab. And had him pass in front of Samuel. Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema. Everybody say, Shema. Shema. Pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons. That's a handful. Can you imagine trying to feed those guys? Seven of his sons passed before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are, are these all of the sons that you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. And Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down before he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Looks good. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So God is building his kingdom. He's found this new leader, and he sends Samuel to pick him up, to anoint him, to make it happen, but he almost misses it. God says, people look at the outward appearance, but Lord, the Lord looks at the heart. Now, I know in a group of wonderful people such as this, none of us would ever, no one would ever judge a book by a cover, would they? No, we would never do anything like this. But we all face the temptation to do that, right? I mean, we look at things, uh, we have to make some sort of an uh, an assumption. We have to figure something out. We have to have something to operate on. And it's true. It's true. And if you don't believe me, there's a couple things I found this week were just startling to me that kind of talk about our human nature, our tendency to do this. Did you know that in a June 2004 article in the Applied Journal of psychology. There was a study in there that found the direct correlation between how tall you are, that is, uh, yeah, your height, and your compensation in the workplace. Let me make sure I get this right. For every inch you are above the average height of your gender, your gender and your age. So if you're an inch taller, five inches taller, or whatever. This study found, on average, you're compensated $789 per inch in a given year. Some of you are thinking, man, I've got to get paid more. I need to wear taller shoes or something. 
if you're above six feet tall, who in this room is taller than six feet tall? All right, got a few of you. This study found that during a 30-year career, you'd be likely to receive $166,000 more than someone who worked the same job that was only five feet, five inches tall. Who here is 5'5"? Five, five? Anybody? A few of you? All right. Interesting, right? We would never do this. Another study found <coughs> that if you are perceived as beautiful, and I had to put that in quotes because I think everybody is beautiful, and I'm not just saying that, uh, you'll likely receive 5% more in compensation. If you're not beautiful, you can expect to, to receive 5% less. Now, when you hear that, it just kind of makes you sick, doesn't it? Right? I mean, we try really hard. We try really hard not to make assumptions. But let's be honest. If I drove up to a busy park full of kids that are playing on the playground in this... Don't tell me you're not going to call the cops on me, all right? Don't tell me at least you're not going to pull your kids a little bit closer and watch, right? All right, let's go to the next slide. Get that thing off there. But, but the truth is, right, we make assumptions based on appearance, and that's exactly what Samuel is doing here. We're all tempted to do this, and we do this in all sorts of our lives. It's not just with people. We do this with God, too. We do this with the situations that God is working in our life. And when we do this, you guys, we miss incredible things that God has for us. God wants to do some really cool things through you in your life. He wants to use you. He wants to do things through you to change the world, to literally go out and change people's lives. This has been God's plan from the very beginning. If you, if you haven't picked that up in the story yet, take another look. God is using normal, everyday people to do incredible things. But if we're not tuned in to what God is saying, then we're going to miss these opportunities. The two most important questions that you can ask as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus Christ, what is God saying to me? And what am I supposed to be doing about it? The two most important questions to ask, and if we don't take time to reflect on those, to answer those, we're going to miss some really cool and not just cool, but life-changing opportunities. Kind of like on a little show called Britain's Got Talent, the one and only Simon Cowell almost missed an opportunity to find a star that came from a very unexpected place. Let's take a look. Don't you love this? Is she cute or what? Just this cute little lady. And have you ever seen, I don't know if you guys watch those kind of talent shows very often, but have you ever seen Simon Cowell with his hands on his face like this and he's smiling? I mean, that's unheard of. I think they were very, very excited that day and I think it caught all of them. In fact, there's an extended version of that clip where the judges say a little bit more and, and all of them basically apologize for the assumptions that they have made based on what it looks like. And we do the very same thing with God. God comes to us and he says, I have some amazing opportunities for you. I want you to be part of this. And yet we look at it with our eyes. We don't look at the heart behind it that God has. We don't look at what God wants to do, what he could do. And so instead, we miss the opportunity. And my question for you this morning is, where are you looking with your eyes? Where are you looking at the appearance of things? And instead, where do you be need to looking at the heart? Luckily, uh, just as Susan's career was launched that day because those judges gave her the opportunity to sing, luckily for us, 
Samuel gave David the opportunity to come and to stand before the Lord and be anointed as the king. David's been completely underestimated. People have ignored him. I mean, his brothers, even his own dad, just think there's no way that he would be the guy. He's out in the field uh, doing his work as a shepherd. But God gives him the chance. But unfortunately for David, the underestimating, the, the being uh, put into this box, this category, uh, continues for him. So if you have your story Bibles, I want to look at page 146. And we make a jump here as we jump to the, the story. Probably all of us have heard one point or another, the story of David and Goliath. Now it turns out war is breaking out uh, between the Philistines and Israel, part of the fallout from Saul's decisions that he's made in the past, his, his, some of his poor leadership. But the Philistines, they have this guy, this guy named Goliath. They have a secret weapon. And so on page 147, at the top of the page there, it gives a description of who Goliath is. A champion named Goliath who was from Gath came out of the Philistine camp and his height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet. Six cubits and a span, by the way, is somewhere between nine and 11 feet. He had a bronze helmet. He wore a coat of armor weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. And its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His, his shield bearer went out ahead of him. Now on a mission from, to get some groceries to the front lines to the troops, I mean, that's what David is doing there in the first place. His dad says, hey, I've got some groceries. You need to get to the army. Why don't you take these up there? While he's there, he happens to hear some talk uh, about the people about what are we going to do with Goliath. And at that point, he actually hears his taunt, which is the very next paragraph. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? And then he says something very interesting I think we need to pay attention to. This gives you a sense of what Goliath's expectations are about a worthy opponent in battle. He says, choose a man. doesn't say choose a boy. He says, choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects, but if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. For 40 days the Philistines came forward. Every morning and every evening and Goliath took his stand. So, so David is there. He happens to be in the crowd that hears this one morning, and he's just got to ask, who is this Philistine that gets to talk like this to God? I mean, David's got a different relationship with God than most of the other people in the army, I think, if not all of them. He asked the obvious question, who does this guy think that he is to treat God like this? And as he's talking to him, and his older brother overhears him, the underestimating, the doubts begin to emerge. Eliab, his older brother, says, why did you even come down here? And there's nothing like a jab from one of your siblings, is there? I mean, it's just, it's just, it just hurts when it comes from the people in your family that are supposed to love you. Why have you come down here, he says. And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? Why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Dad's going to be so frustrated with you. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is, he said. You came down only to watch the battle. And eventually word that David is talking like this, he's asking questions, he's saying, hey, maybe we can do this. 
uh, gets to the king himself, gets to King Saul, but even Saul doubts him. You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David has a response to that. He has something very quickly to say, and I don't even think he hesitates to this. As Saul is laying out the fact that, that he has all of this experience, he has all of these things going on, he says, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it, I struck it, and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Now in the past, when I've read this story, and David says, You know, I killed a bear. I killed a lion. I've always thought, oh yeah, no big deal. All right, think about that for a second. Right? What would it take for you to go out that door if there was a bear sitting there waiting for you? Right? What? I don't think I have what it takes. Does anybody else? No, I mean, I've always kind of written that off. But I think it's really interesting what David is doing here. He's bringing in his life experience. He's using the faith that God has not just given him instantly in this moment, but this life and this faith that is a product of every day that he's lived up until this point, with confidence, he can say, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Let me just read that one more time. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. All right, we got to take a time out here because think about who is saying this and what they're saying that about, all right? I mean, six feet in a span, six cubits in a span, I mean, what does that even look like? I mean, gosh, if only we had some sort of an understanding of what that looked like. Oh, hey, look, there's a ladder here. All right, all right, David is somewhere between nine. I'm sorry, Goliath is somewhere between nine and 11 feet tall, all right? So this ladder is eight feet tall. That gives you some bit of a visual of what this looks like, all right? The view is really quite nice up here, all right? Looking down on people, it gives you a sense of power and authority. I mean, if it's your actual position or whether you're doing that figuratively. David, David is about my height. He's about six feet tall, or so we think, all right? He's somewhere around here, all right? Do you get a sense of what that looks like? I mean, that's, yeah, that's a lot of, that's a big difference. Don't you love the artwork, by the way? Isn't that incredible? No, I didn't draw it either, though. A very beloved volunteer, and I appreciate her giving her artwork, uh, drew that for me. So, all right. But you get it, when you think about this story, I mean, the fact that, that David is going to go up against, against Goliath, I mean, it's helpful to have a visual, but even that picture of Goliath, I mean, that's two feet shorter than what the Bible actually says that he is, all right? And yet David says, the Lord who rescued me in the past, he's going to rescue me again from this Philistine. How does a guy like this stand up and say a thing like that with a challenge like this? How does that happen? I mean, it's almost as if God has been using every single event in his life to prepare him for something uh, for this very moment, how is it that, that a guy like that can have the faith to stand up in a challenge like this? And like I said, when I read this in the past, I didn't think it was that big of a deal. I thought, you know, it's just a cute Bible story. But the reality is that God does things like this with people 
all the time. Maybe it's not slaying an actual giant, but there are giants in our lives that God topples all the time. Do you know anybody that's beat cancer? I think they would tell you very quickly that God still kills giants today, and he uses people like you and me, or doctors or nurses or whoever it is that steps up to the challenge all of the time. And I think David can do this because he knows two things very clearly. One, he knows who God is. He's got an understanding of that. He knows who God is and who God isn't. But perhaps more importantly, he knows who he is. He knows what he can do and he knows what he can't do. It's almost like he's been using all these experiences in his life to train him for something he never saw coming. Almost like when a certain kid named Danielson is sent to a karate master to learn karate because he's been bullied at school. I mean, he's got a black eye. He's excited to learn how to defend himself. He's ready to take on his enemies. And so as he works into this training in this movie, The Karate Kid, anybody seen it? Karate Kid? Absolutely. He begins his training in the most unexpected place. So let's take a look. So there you go. David has been taught two things. He knows who God is, and he knows who he is. But he learns them in the most unexpected way. I mean, as all of his other brothers go out and get to fight these Philistines, how do you think it felt for David to, be, to have to stay home and watch the sheep? I mean, it had to have been... It had to have been tough. And yet by using that experience as a shepherd, just as Daniel is going to learn how to fight karate by washing cars and painting fences, God uses the things in our lives to train us for things that we can't even begin to understand. Because again, we look at it from the appearance, the outward appearance, whereas God looks at the heart, where God asks us to look at the situations in a deeper way. And it's not just that David knows who God is, but he knows who he is and who he isn't. And we see that in the very next uh, section of the scriptures there as Saul finally says yes to him. I mean, David must have been a convincing fellow to get sent out there in front of that enemy. And as as Saul's trying to put his armor on him, as he's trying to get him ready for battle, David finally has to say, I know what I can do. I know what I can't do. I can't wear this armor and do it. So he gets rid of all of it, the shield, the sword, everything for just a few stones and a slingshot, all right? And as he heads out there to stand up to this giant, we begin to see this confidence that he has in God. We begin to see this to take effect, that God has been training him for a long time. And in this seminal moment here of David's journey, we begin to see these lessons come into full effect. We begin to see the lessons uh, begin to bear their fruitfulness just as Eventually, over time, as Daniel's son was learning karate by doing things he thought had nothing to do with it, it began to all make sense. So let's take a look at that as well. So one way or another, Daniel's son's going to learn karate. And he, he begins to realize, without even his understanding it, he's been made ready to become a fighter. And I think David has some sense that this is coming based on the way that he responds to the situation But I think even he had to have been surprised when he got out there and realized the confidence that he had, not just in himself, but in who God was. As the story continues on page 149, 
The Philistine, that is Goliath, with his shield bearer, kept coming closer. And when he saw him, he looked at, down and saw nothing more than a boy glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks, he said? Come here and I'll give your flesh to the birds, to the wild animals. And yet David responds based on his spiritual training. He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Now does that sound like an example of someone that has the heart of a Lord inside them? We don't often think of God's heart as being one of a warrior, one of a protector. Maybe first we think of God being love. But that is an expression of the heart of God when, when Scripture says that David was a man after the Lord's own heart. That is exactly what they're talking about. And as you know, probably the story continues. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran toward the battle line to meet him. He's not holding anything back. And he strikes down the Philistine and he kills him. And of course, as everything unfolds, the, the army, they go nuts. The people, they're excited. This Philistine who's been out there for 40 days taunting them is dead. And so it only makes sense as they come back to town. Now Saul is with David and he loves everything that he's done. He's excited about him. And he puts, it, uh, puts him into his government. He gives him a position and, and gives him a high place in the army. And as they're coming home, though, eventually they come back to uh, the city and the, all of the women have lined up the streets and they're singing songs. They're celebrating. They're throwing a party that else has happened. All of this has taken place. And here's what they say. They say, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And this makes Saul angry. And so what it does is it sets up this difference between these two leaders. You've got the one king, Saul, who's been trying to lead but been veering off course left and right. You've got David who doesn't even know that he's supposed to be the king, who's anointed but still hasn't stepped into his leadership. You've got this whole group of people, this entire nation now, that looks at him over the king and Saul isn't happy about it. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought. But me with only thousands, what more can he get from the kingdom? And from that day on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Because when Saul saw how successful David was, he was afraid of him. And so what happens and what unfolds in the rest of the books of First and Second Samuel is this battle between Saul and David. David just wants to survive. He wants everything to stay the way it is. But God is moving David into a position of prominence and Saul wants to stop it. So much so that he kills 85 priests who give David shelter. And as this battle rages on, as people are getting killed, as it goes on and on and on, God gives David one more chance to uh, reveal his heart for the Lord. And it takes place of all places in a cave out in the midst of the desert. So it says, Saul was told that David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all of Israel and went to look for him. And he came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Guess he had to go to the bathroom. David and his men were far back in the cave, and the men said, This is it. This is what we've been talking about. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, 
I will give your enemy into your hands for you deal for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David was conscience stricken, it says, for having even cut off the corner of his robe. We begin to see something about David's heart in all of this. He loves Saul despite all that he has done to him and he's conscience stricken about it. He says to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master for the Lord's anointed has been chosen by him. I should not lay my hand on him for he is anointed by the Lord. And with these words, he sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. He gives up his opportunity to get revenge, to protect himself from the one who is pursuing him. But then something interesting happens. David goes out of the cave and he calls to Saul. My Lord, the king, he says. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Again, he loves this guy, no matter what he's done to him. He said, Saul, why do you listen? Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes that the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. And do you get the sense that David loves God? See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe and didn't kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, he says, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me. But my hand, my hand will not touch you. David has an incredible opportunity to enact his revenge on the one that's been trying to kill him, trying to get after him. But again, this heart that is inside of him, this heart that is, that is after the Lord's, this heart guides him in a different direction. It got him to be anointed as king. It helped him to prevail in the face of the giant with Goliath and it helps him to continue to love and serve the Lord even in the face of revenge. And I got to think if I were in his situation, would I have that kind of a heart? I mean, would I be able to extend the mercy and the grace that he's given to Saul? And I don't know. But what I do know is that all of us today have been given that same kind of mercy, that same kind of grace, because God in his story is doing something incredible. It was with Ruth and Boaz, and it moves up the family tree into David, and it's going to keep going until again in the city of Bethlehem, a Savior is born, and grace and forgiveness and salvation, all of those things that are on God's heart for you and I will be given to the world. There's nothing else that we can do when we look at this story than worship the God who slays the giants in our lives and continues to walk with us no matter what comes. Will you stand with me and will you pray?